Good morning, everyone. Can I add my welcome to John's uh, and explain that this morning we're hoping to continue the series of studies in James' epistle that we began prior to lockdown. Uh, If I can encourage you to turn to the passage that John read from us uh, earlier in James, uh, we're going to be concentrating particularly in verses 13 through to 18. In uh, these verses, James continues to probe his readers' hearts by asking who is wise and understanding among you. Some think he's still addressing the aspiring ministry candidates mentioned in verses 1 and 2, but surely the wider church is also in view, for we know that he wants them to be mature complete, not lacking anything. Now, for James, uh, maturity is measured in a variety of ways, by our response to trial and temptation, in our obedience to God's word, by our lack of discrimination between uh, rich and and poor, and in a saving faith which meets the needs of others, and certainly also by our control of the tongue. Now in this passage, his spotlight falls upon uh, two wisdoms, and he's asking which of these is shaping our lives. Uh, Three introductory comments. First of all, wisdom has a counterfeit. James distinguishes between genuine and ingenuine wisdom. This is important because no one counterfeits the ordinary or commonplace. For example, who would counterfeit a Harry Melia painting? But a da Vinci or a Van Gogh, that is a different matter. In the spiritual realm, only that of Uh, supreme value and significance is counterfeited. You may remember Jesus warned that the marketplace would be flooded with counterfeit Christs. And since wisdom is a core Christian value and not a periphery objective, we should expect forgeries. The aim of counterfeits is to deceive and to distract from the real thing. Uh, Interestingly, the the NIV translators in verse 15 bracket the word wisdom with uh, commas, indicating that James was unprepared even to dignify this deceptive imitation with the name wisdom. Secondly, wisdom is observable, not invisible. We can't possess it without others being aware of it. It's revealed, says James, in the good life, verse 13. Wisdom is life pervasive, not an occasional activity. It's life saturating, not a sporadic sprinkling. Uh, John Blanchard insightfully Uh, insightfully comment, some Christians suffer from spiritual measles. They're sanctified in spots. 
Now, don't confuse biblical wisdom with knowledge or intelligence. Your Mensa score can be meteoric without being wise. Now, James doesn't belittle learning, but he stresses that wisdom should permeate all of our life. It's not simply what is processed in our minds, but also what is submitted to in our hearts and displayed by our behavior that is revealed in the good life. Thirdly, wisdom's value is emphasized through contrast. If you're familiar with Rembrandt's Man in Armor in the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery, then you'll know that he places his deepest darks beside his brightest lights. His work makes an impact through the use of strong contrasts. Think for a moment of the vivid pictorial contrast Jesus established between the wise and the foolish builder. A deluge left one with a strong shelter, the other with a demolition site. A contrast that was designed to motivate us not only to hear, but to obey Christ's word. Well, here, James in the biblical wisdom tradition purposefully uses contrasts as he holds side by side true and false wisdom. He contrasts their source, their characteristics, and their consequences. Deepest darks against brightest lights. Who is wise among you? James answers, well, it depends upon whether your life is shaped by true or counterfeit wisdom. Hope to examine both of these. First of all, counterfeit wisdom. In verse 15, counterfeit wisdom is described as earthly. Its boundaries are this worldly. Its desires are limited to what can be achieved in the here and now. Jesus described a farmer who measured success annually uh, by the size of his barns, bigger and better, bigger and better, bigger and better. But the epitaph inscribed by God on his gravestone read, fool, fool. He failed to look beyond this world's horizon to lay up treasure in heaven. Worldly wisdom defines success as wealth accumulated, reputation built, material goals achieved, all without reference to God. Ecclesiastes calls this living life under the sun, which results in a chasing after the wind. An inevitable consequence, since you see, God has placed eternity in the heart of man. And so, when we live life without reference to God, all our perceived successes evaporate. 
Alexander the Great, who won a string of military triumphs en route to India. On arrival there, broke down in tears. Why? Because there were no lands left to conquer. Despite having achieved his earthly goal, his life was empty. Secondly, worldly wisdom is unspiritual. It's totally devoid of the Holy Spirit's work. In his epistle, Jude says of its purveyors in verse 19, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Spiritual vocabulary is no guarantee of spiritual genuineness. When the Galatian church fell under the spell of unspiritual wisdom, Paul asked, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Whenever spiritual guidance appeals to human performance as a means of securing salvation, alarm bells ought to ring. You may remember in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian encountered such an advisor who insisted that law-keeping would safely steer him en route to heaven. What name did Bunyan give this particular advisor? Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Today, people appeal to unspiritual wisdom because it resonates with man's conviction that he can save himself. There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is death. Think of the plethora of self-help books that line the spirituality sections of our bookstores. Some uh, extol the benefit of confession. Great, you say, confession. Yes, but it is not confession that is directed towards a holy God who has been offended. Rather, you're told to confess your faults to yourself because it will make you feel so much better unspiritual wisdom. Thirdly, the ultimate source of this wisdom is the devil. His wisdom pushes for the rejection of God's rule. Uh, note how in Isaiah 14 and verse 12 following, uh, which describes the ambition of the king of Babylon, and I quote, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you not see Satan mirrored in these verses. His wisdom pushes for a, a declaration of independence from God in our life with the promise of liberation and enrichment. 
What did he promise Eve? You will be like God. Now, self-deification and selfish ambition are closely connected. In both verse 14 and 16, the characteristics of counterfeit wisdom are identified as bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy invariably targets those with whom we can most closely identify. You see, if you've no interest in gardening, you're unlikely to envy someone who's won a gold medal at the Chelsea Flower Show. But if your work colleague regularly wins best car salesman of the month, that's a different matter. There's an intolerance in such a rivalry. It can't bear the success of others or their popularity. And given the opportunity, bitter envy will do all it can to humiliate and degrade them. Of selfish ambition, William Secker writes, once a man becomes a god to himself, he then becomes a devil to others. How so? Because unworthy and divisive means are used to exalt self and demolish others. Push, drive, climb, grasp, trample, all illustrate the means to arrive at one's goal. Now, of course, there is a legitimate place for ambition and for blood and sweat and tears, but it should have its roots in the call of God and the desire for God's glory, not in the desire to get ahead of others. Other people are not rungs in a ladder to be climbed over to get to the top. James concludes that bitter envy and selfish ambition produce disorder and every evil practice. Now, Paul tells us that God is a God of order. But counterfeit wisdom aims to create chaos, disorder, and disharmony. Was this not the case in the disciple band during the Last Supper? In Luke 22 and 24, we read, and not for the first time, that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Oh, how they needed to grasp that in God's kingdom, the way up is down. False wisdom boasts, I'm the greatest, the most proficient, the best man for the job. And its followers become the center of gravity of their world. Their boasting is far removed from the humility of verse 13. Counterfeit wisdom invariably destroys community and it tears human relationships apart. We'll see more of that in chapter 4. But such Community disintegration is vividly depicted in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, where hell's inhabitants are shown to move further and further away from their neighbor again and again and again. Can't stand him, can't stand her. 
There's no such thing you see as an unholy huddle. The scene described is one of social disintegration, disunity. The expression of evil practice in verse 16 translates a rare Greek word meaning trivial or worthless. And James concludes that whatever appears to be achieved as a result of worldly wisdom will turn out hollow and totally void of value. The trajectory of of worldly wisdom leads to destruction and dissatisfaction and disappointment. Now, alongside this dark picture of counterfeit wisdom, James lays in bright contrast a picture of heavenly wisdom in verse 17 following. This wisdom we were told earlier in verse 13 produced the good life and deeds done in humility. Why humility? James Packer helpfully comments, not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. Heavenly wisdom rejects arrogant, me-centered, self-exalting lifestyle. Jesus is surely our exemplar here. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus didn't uh, pursue the approval ratings of this world, and nor should we. And if Jesus is being replicated in our lives, if we are becoming what Luther daringly calls little Christs, then the master's wisdom, which is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, should become evident in our lives. Oh, not instantly, and perfectly, but progressively. But why, you ask, is purity the the first descriptor that James uses in verse 17? Surely because it's the doorway through which all the other characteristics proceed. Purity has to do with the heart with the the inner control center of our personality, the throne room of our inward thoughts, outward speech and activity. A pure heart reveals itself in an undivided love for God. If the great obsession of worldly wisdom is a man's obsession with himself, then the great obsession of heavenly wisdom is an obsession with God. Count Zinzendorf, 
who was so instrumental in the Moravian uh, revival, famously said of God, I have one passion. It is he, he alone. Genuine wisdom will also be peace-loving. Why? Because God is a God of peace. God's redemptive goal contains both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Peace with God and peace with others. Now there's a book title. Clearly not as snappy as Billy Graham's Peace with God, but it focuses upon the two sets of relationships which the gospel reconciles. To each is brought peace through the blood of the cross. Ephesians 2. The second flows from the first. Reconciliation with God means that human relationships, which once seemed so irreconcilable, Jew and Gentile dog, can now have the shalom, the peace, the harmony of God breathed into them. And so the Christian is enlisted in God's peace corps. Now there's a a world of difference between uh, a UN uh, peacekeeper and a Christian peacemaker. The former struggles to keep two hostile parties uh, apart, often simply monitoring a fragile cessation of hostility. But the latter is involved in reconciliation and instrumental in producing the shalom of God where discord is replaced with harmony. Heavenly wisdom is peace-loving. Also, it is considerate. This carries the idea of being willing to see the best and the worst of people, of being ready to forgive uh, when one really has the power to condemn This heavenly wisdom is also submissive because it recognizes God's sovereign control. It trusts him for the future. Do you remember when David, God's anointed king, was living as a fugitive being pursued by King Saul? He, on one occasion, had the opportunity to take Saul's life in a cave, but refused And his men couldn't understand it. David, seize the crown. Kill kill Saul. Seize the crown. But instead, David trusted God with his future submission. Today, do we bleat because we've been passed over for promotion? The wise man submits to God's sovereign rule in his life. But a submissive man is also easy to be entreated. Oh, he's no pushover or lacking in moral backbone, but he's open to reason, and therein lies his strength. Unlike the belligerent and unyielding man who comes to a meeting with his mind already made up, 
uh, which incidentally reveals his weakness and his uh, insecurity, the wise man will go as far as he can to accommodate the viewpoint of others without, of course, sacrificing principle. Someone has said, wise men change their minds. Fools never do. Heavenly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. It bestows forgiveness generously without impressing on the wrongdoer the great pain he's caused. And how often that happens. Oh yes, you're forgiven. But I want you to know that your behavior has caused me weeks and weeks of sleepless nights. Do we rub people's faces in their failure? The wise man is full of mercy precisely because God has lavished mercy on him. The unforgiving servant in Jesus' parable couldn't see that connection. Now, closely connected with mercy is the idea of good fruit. If you were to turn back to chapter 2, verse 16, we read that a supplicant was dismissed with this pious advice. Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. But James's point is that good fruit is revealed in practical help and not in sloppy sentimentality. There was a significant earthquake in uh, 1978 in Tabas in Iran. We were there at the time and upwards of 25,000 Muslims were killed. But it was the minority Christian community who were the first to pour relief into that needy situation. Good fruit. Heavenly wisdom is also impartial and sincere. Uh, impartiality has already been addressed, if you can remember this far back in chapter 2, verse 1. But turning to this word sincere, it literally means without hypocrisy. It is a word that has its origin in the Greek theater, where masks were worn to hide the true identity of the actor. Now, we hide behind a mask whenever we act contrary to our beliefs or seek to disguise what we truly stand for. That's hypocrisy. My uh, first or almost first call uh, as a trainee minister was to a school teacher whom I found distraught and in floods of tears. A new teacher had joined her school and a colleague had warned her off him saying, be careful or he'll try and convert you. She had been at the school for years. No one knew she was a Christian. She had hidden her Christian belief behind a mask. Let's try and pull this together. James holds before us two sources of radically different wisdoms. One uh, cultivates an arrogant self-centeredness. 
The other, a humble submission to God. One is destructive, the other is productive. You may well ask, how can I experience more of this godly wisdom at work in my life? James has already begun to answer that in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given you. However, this wisdom is not something we wrestle down from a reluctant God in heaven. On one hand, it's part of Christ's indwelling, inwrought at conversion. Christ, Paul tells us, has been made unto us wisdom. And it's outworked through prayer. This growth in wisdom is not, atom, is not automatic. It can't be divorced from an understanding of God's word and the dependence upon God's spirit to help us appropriate spiritual truth and then externalize that truth in our lives. This is how the harvest of righteousness mentioned in verse 18 is produced. Wisdom grows as my obedience to God grows, as my delight in his will grows. Can I ask, do you want to be a heavy cropper? Do I want to be a heavy cropper as far as this harvest of righteousness is concerned? Well, have we an appetite for this wisdom? And that's really another way of asking, do I have an appetite for Christ? How much do I want to see Christ fully formed within me? Two wisdoms, says James. Which one is significantly shaping your life? Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, confronted with a passage such as this, we cannot help but see our own failure and recognize those areas in our life where we need the Spirit's help to grow and to develop Christ-likeness. And we acknowledge that in our best moments, we long to be that people who more clearly reflect the Lord Jesus in our behavior, in our words, our speech, and in our thinking. Help us, Lord, to be wise and understanding we acknowledge our dependency upon yourself. Hear us. For Jesus' sake, amen.